You're listening to King's Court's Message of the Week from King's Court Church in Kingston, Ontario. For more information, please visit our website, www.kingscourtfmc.com. So this past Tuesday was a really busy day at the cafe. We had lots of new visitors and old friends who came to enjoy a cup of coffee, a cup of hot chocolate, to pray, to just converse. We had our regulars, which included the children whose bus stops right out front of our church. Come three o'clock, we have anywhere between eight and 12 kids, along with their parents, who sit around and enjoy some hot cocoa and cookies. Twice a week, beginning at 2.45, I line up all the styrofoam cups, I add a nice heaping spoon of hot chocolate powder, some boiling water, and an ample amount of cream. The kids comment time and time again how much they love our hot chocolate. But I learned this past Tuesday that not everyone appreciates it. Earlier that same day, I had made some hot chocolate for some of our adult guests. And one of the guests commented, I'll have another hot chocolate. But this time, you don't have to make it like you do for the kids with so much cream to cool it down. It's hardly warm at all. I was so used to adding cream to cool it down so that the kids wouldn't burn their tongues that I ended up just out of habit making it the exact same way for our adult guests. Not enough cream to make it a cold cup of chocolate milk, but too much that they were able to enjoy it as a hot chocolate. It was lukewarm, and that was anything but pleasing to their palates. Which brings us this morning to the last letter written to the churches as recorded in the book of Revelation. The letter to the church in Laodicea. If you want, you can open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3 and we're going to read verses 14 to 22. Revelation chapter 3 and we're going to read verses 14 to 22. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Laodicea. This is a message from the one who is the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's new creation. I know all the things you do, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were one or the other. But since you are like lukewarm water, neither hot or cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have everything I want, I don't need a thing. And you don't realize that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. So I advise you to buy gold from me, gold that has been purified by fire. Then you will be rich. And also buy white garments from me so you will not be shamed by your nakedness. An ointment for your eyes so you'll be able to see. I correct and discipline everyone I love. So be diligent and churn from your indifference. Look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in. And we will share a meal together as friends. Those who are victorious will sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat with my father on his throne. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Laodicea 
was situated in a valley on the banks of the river Lycus. It was about 63 kilometers east of Ephesus. It was a great and wealthy city. Their major trades were selling black sheep's wool and Phrygian, which is an eye powder which they used as an ointment for treating eye soreness. And it was created by crushing up Phrygian stones. Easton's dictionary mentions that a very early period, Laodicea became one of the chief seats of Christianity. And so with this picture of Laodicea in your mind, let's consider the letter that Jesus wrote to the Christians in that city. The one writing the letter is Jesus. As his character is described in the introduction of the letter, as it is in every letter, we remember that that character speaks to the issues that are addressed in the body of the letter. Jesus here is described as the one who is the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's new creation. What does it mean when Jesus describes himself as the one who is the amen? The word amen, as with many Hebrew words, means different things depending on the context. When we say amen at the end of a prayer, it means let it be so. That's what amen means when we say it at the end of the prayer. It means let it be so. When Jesus started his teachings in the original language, you read it says amen, amen. And it's often translated as verily, verily, or truly, truly. And it's used to signify that what is about to be said is true and dependable. When Jesus describes himself as the one who is the amen, he is saying he is the truth. He is the dependable one. Above any and all others, Jesus is the truth. Which means anything contrary to Jesus and his teachings, his life, his example, is a lie. It is not dependable. To add emphasis to his point, he adds the faithful and true witness. Jesus is faithful. That means that he is trustworthy. You can trust Jesus implicitly. You can take him at his word. And this is very important. When Jesus goes on to say that he is the beginning of God's new creation, I want you to hear this. When he says he is the beginning of God's new creation, he is not saying that he was the first of God's creation. For Jesus is himself God. But he is saying that he was the primary source of creation. For it was by Jesus and through Jesus that all things find their source, find their origin. It is by Jesus and through Jesus that all things are created. Jesus the Christ, the true, dependable, and faithful one, goes on to say to the Laodicean Christians, I know all the things you do, that you are neither hot nor cold, and I wish that you were one or the other. Time and time again in these letters, Jesus says, I know all the things you do. He sees the things we do. And more than that, he sees the motive of our heart. The things we do so we look good and people think we have it all together, but really it's just for our own gain, a facade to build up our reputations. He also sees when we fall short, when we stumble, when we mess up. But again, in that, he sees our hearts. When even though the struggles, 
We are desperately trying to get right. He sees when we're trying to honor him with our lives. But we're struggling. We might be able to deceive others, even ourselves at times. But Jesus says, I know. What he knows about the Laodiceans is that they are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were one or the other, he says. They're not on fire for God. Their passion has died down. They're not hot enough to light a spark for anyone else. There were many in Jesus' day, and even in this time after his ascension, who seemed on fire for God, zealous for him. But it was all a show. They were much like the Pharisees, using God for their own gain. Jesus here is not talking about a display of zeal, not a show that fills auditoriums or megachurches, but a holy passion that is fueled by a deep and sincere love for God, a sincere passion from an overwhelming heart of gratitude for all that God has done in your life, a zeal that is selfless, a zeal that is willing to risk it all for the sake of the kingdom. Wanting to do whatever you can for the glory of God. A zeal that understands if our faith is worth anything, then our faith is worth everything. If our faith is worth anything, then our faith is worth everything. Is Jesus suggesting then that it is better that if they're not burning hot with passion for God, then they would be better off cold and dead on the inside? Better off a faithless person than someone of lukewarm faith? Obviously not. (laughs) The point he is making is that it is more dangerous to swim in stinky, stagnant waters of lukewarm faith than the frigid, cold waters of no faith. From no faith, indeed, from one who even opposed the faith, came the Apostle Paul who upon conversion burned hot with passion for the glory of God. I think when Jesus says he would rather you be hot or cold, he is saying, I would rather you be untouched by the power of grace rather than to have received the grace of God and not allow it to have its full work in you. Better off is the one who has not yet heard or experienced the miraculous work of God's grace in their life than the one who has and then stifles its work. There is more hope for an unconverted sinner than there is for the one who has been made aware of God's will and has been enabled to walk in it and instead chooses not to. It's one thing to say, I didn't know God. I didn't know what he wanted me to do. And yet it's an entirely different thing to know God and to know what he wants you to do and to be indifferent to it. The sentence is not a wish that the Laodiceans should become hot or cold. It's a regret that they had not been one or the other. For there is more hope, I would suggest, for an honest atheist than a self-deceived and complacent Christian. Here's the thing, and it's not going to sound pretty, but it is the truth that is expressed. Jesus is disgusted with lukewarm religion. It makes him sick. That's literally what Jesus says. He says, but since you are lukewarm water, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. He's saying, I will vomit you out of my mouth. That's what that means. Just like one may want to spit out a tepid glass of milk, so Jesus will spit out those who live a life 
of faith of indifference. One foot in his word, the other in the world. Physicians would often give lukewarm water to patients to induce vomiting. That is the image Jesus is painting. Jesus would vomit the complacent Christian out of his mouth. But what is the cause of this lukewarm indifference which so nauseated our Savior? As we read on, we see Jesus says to the Laodiceans, You say I am rich. I have everything I want. I don't need a thing. And you don't realize that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Self-conceit and self-delusion cast shade which quickly cools a passionate faith. The Laodiceans thought they had it all together and they were boasting in their own self-sufficiency. They were wealthy. They were wealthy in worldly goods. They wanted for nothing. They were wealthy in knowledge. They were self-reliant. They considered themselves to be full of spiritual riches, having more than enough religion, comfortable in their circumstances. And they were complacent, satisfied with their selves. And that had led to their self-deception. Puffed up with pride and content with the state of their spiritual selves, they could not see their need. They were hypocrites who couldn't even recognize they were hypocrites, which is often the case. Wretched, destitute of the blessings of God, lacking in the true riches which would satisfy them in times of sickness and disappointment, grief and death, left miserable, worthy of pity, only appearing to be happy, but lacking any lasting joy, poor in the economy of God. All their worldly riches could not buy what their soul truly needed, a savior and the hope of heaven, blind to their true spiritual state, to the ways of God, to his incredible plans and purposes for them. They were exposed to the all-knowing God and were found naked, unadorned by the garment of salvation. And yet there is hope. There is always hope because they need not stay this way. Jesus extends to them, as he always does, to everyone an opportunity to repent. He offers them a better way, explaining, So I advise you to buy gold from me, gold that has been purified by fire. Then you will be rich. Also, buy white garments from me, so you will not be shamed by your nakedness, an ointment for your eyes, so you will be able to see. I love how Jesus opens this offer. He says to those that he just declared to be poor, I advise you to buy from me. How can those who are poor buy anything from him? And yet that's exactly the point. None of us can afford the cost of what is being offered to us. And that is the beauty of grace. Because Jesus paid it all, and all to him we owe. The gold purified by fire is faith in and love for God. For there is nothing that makes us richer than being in right relationship with God. Faith that sees one growing in love for God and others is golden. Indeed, it's worth far more than gold. In God, we have it all. The poorest of paupers are made rich in relationship with God. Riches beyond compare. Riches this world cannot rob us of. Eternal riches, which moth and rust cannot destroy. In God, we have all we need and more than we could ever hope for. To this, 
White garments are being offered which will cover our sin and shame. The cloak of righteousness, the garment of salvation. Jesus here is offering himself. Put on Christ as the only one who covers our shame and takes away the sins of the world. We need to daily put on Christ. Through faith, we have been offered the cloak of righteousness, which is Christ. But daily, we must do our part in putting it on. There is nothing more abnormal and divergent from the true spirit of the New Testament than faith, so-called, which is not accompanied by daily effort. Put off the old man with his deeds and put on the new man of God created in righteousness and holiness of truth. Finally, they needed ointment, which would open their eyes to see, to see their self-deception, to see themselves as they truly were. They're being offered the anointing of the Holy Spirit, who would teach them all spiritual things. And receiving the ointment might be uncomfortable. It might sting, for it sometimes does when we see ourselves as we truly are. But it brings about healing. As our eyes are open to see and appreciate the things of God, we experience the healing of our spirits, the healing of our souls, the healing of our hearts. Whether blind in whole or in part, the Spirit will open our eyes so that we can see clearly the character of God, the beauty of the way of salvation, and the loveliness of the person and work of Christ. As we approach Advent, I'm reminded of the candles that will mark each week. And our need to allow the candle of Christ to shine in the darkness of our hearts, to shine in the darkness of our lives and expose and reveal to us our true spiritual condition. Those parts that still need to have the light of Christ shining in them. In these three gifts, Jesus here is offering himself, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who are one in eternity, deity, and purpose, everlasting, of infinite power, wisdom, and goodness. And he's offering all the healing and riches a relationship with the Trinity brings. Clearly, these are things which cannot be bought. Faith, love, righteousness, salvation, spiritual wisdom, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is the good news. It is being offered as a gift. The gift of God, the gift of eternal life. And yet it will cost everything. For that is the scandal of grace. These gifts are not free. Grace is not free. They were bought with a price. And the cost was Jesus' life on the cross. And yet that price having been paid, this gift is now being offered to all who would receive. And yet don't be deceived. You can never afford to buy these things. It will still cost you everything. Having nothing to give, all we can offer is ourselves. And in giving our very life to God, we find we are actually more fully alive. In losing our life, we find it. In daily dying to ourself, we are made alive in Christ. From lukewarm to burning heart with the fire of faith. The Laodiceans, like many in our churches, are not willing to lose their life. Not seeking to daily die to self so that Christ can live in them in order to receive the fullness of of the life that God is offering in order to grab hold 
of all the riches that he is handing to them. They were, and too many are, lukewarm. This would be quite a correction for the Laodiceans, who thought they had it all together. They thought they were the best of the best, the most religious, the most religious among all of them. It may have even seemed harsh to them. It may seem harsh to you to hear that God will spit out, vomit out the lukewarm Christian. But it doesn't need to be. For they and we are sometimes so indifferent to our spiritual condition, so assured that we got it right, that it takes a stinging rebuke to wake us up from our complacency. Jesus said, I correct and discipline everyone I love. I correct and discipline everyone I love. So be diligent and turn from your indifference. Look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and we will share a meal together as friends. I correct and discipline everyone I love. Jesus loves us enough to correct us. And I think this is a significant lesson for us in the church. We must be willing to love one another enough to rebuke each other in love. Not with selfish motives, to correct a behavior or attitude that is contrary to our own, but for the sake of the individual, for the sake of the kingdom. We must be willing to risk friendships in order to save friends by saying the difficult things. The grace that God extends to us is a grace that sets us free from sin. Yet all too often I would argue that we extend to one another out of fear of offending, a grace that cripples our brothers and sisters in Christ, a grace that leaves us enslaved in our sin. And that is no grace at all. When we go astray, Jesus just doesn't leave us wandering in the wilderness. He is constantly calling us home, sometimes disciplining us in order to show us the way to abundant life and eternal life, sometimes correcting us, But the way home always begins with a U-turn. It always requires turning around. It always will take repentance. Jesus says, so be diligent and turn from your indifference. Look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in. And we will share a meal together as friends. There's something that I've heard Miss Eunice say more than once that has remained with me. She often says, Jesus is a gentleman. He will never force his way into your life. Jesus is a gentleman. Jesus has been. He is. And he will continue to stand at the door of your heart and knock. The Holy Spirit has been, is, and will continue to whisper, it is I, I am here. Would you let me in? Would you let me into that area of your life that you've closed off? Would you let me into that valley that you're struggling within? Would you let me into that area of sin that you don't want to admit you're struggling with? He will never force his way into your life. He will never make you do it his way. He will never force his way into your choices or into your decisions, but he will always make himself available. No matter how broken your heart, how dirty your heart, how messed up your heart, how sinful your heart, Jesus waits and wants to come in 
to your heart. To fill it with his gifts and graces. To bring healing. To bring restoration. To bring strength and newness of life to your heart. Regardless of what you have done or what has been done to you. Jesus waits and wants to enter into a relationship with you. To be your friend. To share a meal together. To commune together as close friends do. Indeed, all who invite him in will be invited to the great banquet feast in heaven. Those who are victorious, he says, will sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat with my father on his throne. While each promise Jesus offers at the end of each of the seven letters is for all the churches, is for, indeed, all believers, this is the ultimate promise offered to the churches. And Jesus has mentioned it to the least of the churches. He has offered the greatest of promises to the worst of the churches. I'm not sure if you noticed, but I had said at the beginning of this series that there were two churches that received no rebuke, but there was one church that received no praise. The church of Laodicea is the church. The lukewarm church received no praise, only rebuke. This was the worst of the churches who are being offered the greatest of promises. The Laodiceans who thought they had it all together were in a worse state than all of the other churches. Yet if they would respond to his gift of grace, if they would repent and turn to him, they would share in the inheritance of their heavenly father. They will sit on the throne of Christ, the place in closest relationship to him, sharing in his honor and triumph. You know what I love most about this promise? is that the highest again of seats is offered to the lowest of churches. The highest honors in heaven is available to the one that Jesus is so disgusted with. He would vomit them out of his mouth. The lowliest of Christians, the worst of sinners, are extended the greatest of gifts if they would simply repent. And I quote Trench who said, The highest place is within the reach of the lowliest. The faintest spark of grace may be fanned into the mightiest Flame of love. I've seen the lowliest of people have that spark of grace fan into flame to the greatest amount of love. I see it time and time again. Watching an atheist or a non-believer become a believer is a glorious thing to watch. And there is something about it. I, I can't put my finger on it. That was my experience. And I had one of the youth say to me, Kathleen, do you think you love Jesus more because you didn't grow up in a Christian home? Like, no. I don't think I love Jesus more, and I certainly don't think I love Jesus better. But I know what it is to live without Jesus. I know the difference, and I don't ever want to go back. And so there is a passion, and there is a gratitude that continues to compel me to live and love because of the way that God has loved me. The least, the lowest of sinners can receive the highest of honors when they repent and allow God to fan into flame that spark of grace. We come to the throne as Jesus did. Just as Christ was victorious, overcoming the world, sin and death and the devil, so too can we claim victory in Christ. He will equip and empower us to fight the same fight, to overcome and then be crowned. For we are more than conquerors through him, and we can be made kings and queens by him. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. Jesus is standing at the door of our heart and he is knocking. 
Maybe he wants to shine his light in the darkest corner of your spiritual struggle, revealing the mold and cobwebs, the cracks and fissures in your faith. Will you let him? Rather than asking you to accept Christ, I want to encourage you to answer that knock and ask Christ for his acceptance. Rather than ask you to make Jesus Lord as though he isn't already so, I encourage you to surrender yourself to his lordship. Surrender your self-sufficiency and submit to him as Lord. Instead of extending an altar call, I'm simply going to entrust you to our sovereign God. And as I invite you to commune with our Savior this morning, I want to ask you to listen and respond to whatever the voice of the Holy Spirit is saying to you this morning. Before we prepare to take communion, I want us to take a moment of silence to listen to what the Holy Spirit may be saying to us to prepare our hearts to respond with every head bowed and every eye closed. Listen. That still small voice is speaking.